This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. We're starting on a series for the next four weeks entitled Defining Moments. Defining Moments will be captured by definitions of defining moments as you go through because everybody in this room, everybody in every room, online, however you find the message, download, whatever, you will identify with this phrase because you understand it. It's a phrase that we use in today's vernacular, what it means to have a particular moment in your life called a defining moment for the person who is outside of Christ, and there are people that are around us all the time that are outside of Christ, their value system and their moments are different. They're, uh, I'm not going to say they're less, they're different. They have defining moments that are different in their life. When you find Christ and you have a new world and a new life, your defining moments take on a different shape and a different power, obviously, because God's involved with your life. So we're going to talk about what does it mean to have defining moments in your life. Here's my definition. A defining moment is something to do with this divinely arranged moments in your life. Now, every person has this going on right now. Whether you know it or not, you have divinely arranged moments. A moment could be a day it could be the summary of what happened in a year time or five years and it kind of explodes at this moment and comes into being. It's called a defining moment. We understand there's more moments that make up that moment. But a defining moment has some kind of divine arrangement. A divine arrangement in your life that actually redefines who you are. It redefines how you see something, your worldview, your perspective. Your heart changes. When you have a near-death experience, your whole perspective changes on life. Your whole perspective changes on the minute you want to live. Because something has happened to give you a defining moment. When you lose something real precious in life, a defining moment might redefine the way you see everything in life from that point on. Defining moments can be positive or negative. There are great defining moments like birthdays and weddings. And, but there's also defining moments that have to do with death, separation from people you love, maybe a marriage that ends the wrong way, something that happens with a child, a relationship with a person, a defining moment that you look back on and you realize... It defines the way I feel, but it's a negative definition. It marked me the wrong way. It was a defining moment, caused me to protect myself, caused me to have a little dysfunctionality in my emotional makeup, caused me to be negative about people, whatever it might be. There are negative defining moments that happens in a person, and you step over the line when you have those moments with a choice, with a choice of making that moment different than negative, but if you don't, you'll live it out. And that defining moment will begin to redefine personality, and character, decision-making, and relationships, and money, and a defining moment. Think about your defining moments. Here's my second definition. Defining moments are a series of God moments. 
strung together by God's acts in our lives that result in redefinition of life. So they're God moments. And they're strung together in a supernatural way, in a sovereign way, that kind of becomes the mountain peaks of your life. Those God moments when God puts things together and you look back and just take a deep breath and say, oh my goodness, the hand of the Lord was in that. How did all that come together? I was at a dead end and the door just opened. My business, business was erect and all of a sudden it just, something happened and this person put money in and that person and I just cannot even believe how this thing has turned around. So you have defining moments that are, for us, God moments, where God is at work. God is at work right now in your life. God is at work right now in your life. Relationally, emotionally, financially. In every way, God is working in your life, on your behalf. And there's some defining moments coming your way. Fourth definition, defining moments can suddenly arise from a gradual stride made on the journey, just things that are gradually coming and you can't see them. You actually cannot put them together yet. They gradually begin to unfold. Now sometimes as things begin to unfold in our life, we think we see it. We think we figured it out. We think we know where this train's going. We think we know how it's going to all end up. We think we know now what's been laid out. We think we know now what the will of God means for our life. We think we can kind of piece the puzzle together and say, okay, I'm seeing the man and the tree. I'm seeing the puzzle. I'm beginning to see. Only to find out what you see is not what God sees. Only to find out what God has put it together is not actually what you thought he was putting together. We call that divine surprise, where God actually pulls off something in your life that almost shocks you to think, you know, I did not see this coming at all. Now, hopefully, we're talking about something very positive and not negative that God begins to pull off in your life. And if God is at work in your life, I guarantee you it is positive, and he can even turn the negative into positive if you really know how to lay it down. Can somebody say a big amen? amen. Divinely arranged moments. I'm going to give you six just as an introduction to what I want to say. Because everybody should have these as defining moments. Number one, the first defining moment would be the salvation moment. Where you look back on your life and you realize you had a Christ encounter, as some folks had today and last night, and every day that we're around people that are needing Christ, they have a salvation moment. When was your salvation moment? I was raised around church but didn't have a salvation moment until I met Christ myself personally. And that became a moment where my life changed. I knew about Christ. I knew about church. I knew about heaven and hell. I knew, I knew, I knew. But I never encountered personally a Christ that changes a person's life, enters your life, and actually makes you to want, desire to love him and serve him and do things for him I thought I would never be doing. But when Christ comes into your life, it's a divine moment. Can you look back and find your moment? Can you go back in time and say, I had a defining moment. Christ came into my life. If you can't, I challenge you to find that moment. Because religiosity will not get you anywhere, and knowledge can be a dead end if it does not transform you into a personal relationship with Christ. And so there has to be a defining moment where your sins are forgiven, not kind of forgiven, not maybe forgiven, forgiven. 
Not kind of change, maybe change, maybe my past is behind me. You keep bringing up your past. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. says that when you're in Christ, all things have become new, and you're a brand new creation. It is or it isn't. If it is, it's a defining moment. And everything that happens, you go back and grab that minute. I was forgiven. My past is behind me. I'm hidden in the cross. Christ loves me. And it's a defining moment. Number two, second defining moment would be the moment that you understand water baptism is a breakthrough moment for your life. I was baptized three times in my Christian life. First time I was baptized because the church wanted me to be baptized. My parents did. So I was a sinner. I didn't know Christ. So I was a sinner in the tank, and I was a dry sinner standing there. I went down under the water, and I came up a wet sinner. There was no difference because I had no heart for Jesus. All I did was get wet, and everybody clapped, and I thought, well, clapping for what? Because there was no meaning. There was no relationship. It was just a religious thing. Later on, I was baptized again because some of my friends were being baptized after a camp kind of a situation. So I got baptized. But again, it was just water on me, but there was nothing in me. There was nothing in me. I didn't understand water baptism. I didn't have any relationship to God. But later on, when I got saved, born again, age 17, where Christ transformed me, my defining moment, where I left my past, where I actually understood what the cross meant. My sins were forgiven. It had nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with my mom and dad. It was me, Frank, standing with Jesus and finding a place at the foot of the cross that washed my past away and gave me a brand new relationship I could not believe anybody could have, the kind of relationship I found in Christ. It was so awesome and wonderful. So I wanted to be water baptized. When I was baptized that time, I went down under the water with faith, circumcision of heart, the surgery of the invisible hand, that God would come and cut away my path. I had faith that when I went into the water, that God would actually cut some things out of my path, that he would bring some healing to my inner man, that I would come out of the water like it says in Romans chapter 6 and other places about walking in newness of life, and you go down and the old is cut away, and Romans 2 talks about the circumcision of heart. I went into that water, and I came out of that water, as you see people when they're water baptized now around our church, with my hands up, with a spirit of faith, saying, this is a new me, I have a new name, I have a new destiny, God has cut my path away and I'm going to serve the living God. Now, I had a spirit of faith about this. Not just dry center, wet center. Spirit of faith. It was a defining moment. I can still smell the water. I can still see the faces. I can still remember the feel. The feel. Something just happened. Say, well, come on, it's just water baptism. Water baptism is a covenant seal upon covenant people by a covenant God that gives you a covenant future that God's going to do something awesome in your life. It's more than just water. It's a covenantal thing. I stamped, sealed, brought up. God says, I own you. My name's on you. I said, you got it. Define a moment. Third one is when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. A defining moment for me. Now, for you that have different belief systems or different experience, okay, we don't slam dunk anybody about this, nor do we push it from the pulpit, as you know. But I just want you to know 
The lead pastor at City Bible Church speaks in tongues. That's me. I speak in tongues. Now, I don't speak in tongues just to be smart, although it does help me get smarter. But speaking in tongues, because I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, the power of God came upon me. It was a defining moment. I remember the place I was. I was on a golf course. That's a defining moment. God was saying, you should golf. But it didn't help my golf game. I remember hearing people speak in tongues and thinking, what in the world is this? I never heard it before. It was crazy. Crazy. I could not even, whoa. You want me to do that? Whoa, hold it here. Just one second, please. I'm an intelligent species. I'm not buying into this. I mean it. But then as I was taught and I understood, and it was a Catholic priest that taught me. A Catholic priest. So I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon me. I spoke in a spiritual language. The power of God came upon my life. And now I speak in spiritual language every single day of my life, ever since that day. I pray in tongues. I speak in tongues during worship time. I even kiss in tongues. Whoa! That can be taken many different ways. It was a defining moment when people say to me, well, do I have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? No. Should you want to? Yes. Why? It's a moment. It's a defining moment. At least for me, it totally radically changed my life. I was a different man after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I never preached before in my life until I got filled with the Holy Spirit. When I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm in a, in a pottery class at Rubido High School, and we're doing pottery, and the teacher starts talking about something philosophical, which most of those artsy people do sometimes. And so we were getting into it, and so I started giving my testimony, and the Holy Spirit came on me. I started preaching. So the whole class stopped and listened. I remember leaving the classroom thinking, wow, watch out, Billy Graham. I mean, that's a different. I'd never experienced that kind of whatever it was. It was the anointing, but I didn't know the anointing. But it started, I started preaching, testifying, praying for people, believing for miracles, stuff I never did. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was a defining moment for me. Number four, the fourth defining moment was committing my life to a local church. I was all over the show with the Jesus People Movement. We went from house to house, literally, city to city, literally. We had Bible studies. We had school studies. We had all kinds of prayer things going on. We had concerts, but I was not a local church guy. Even though I was raised in church, I was as ignorant about God as anybody else could be. I did not know the things of God, the principles of God, the ways of God, the scriptures of God. I had a few little scriptures I could memorize, but I did not understand the Bible. All I had was a testimony. Finally, someone sat me down and said, Frank, listen to me. You need to get into a local church. Why? Because you're ignorant. You don't know God's ways. You need spiritual authority in your life. You need to be taught, discipled, mentored. You, you, you need to get your roots down in the house of God. I never heard language like that. 
When people talk to me about roots and house of God and spiritual authority and covering and, and mentoring and discipleship, and I, I had not heard the terms, but I gave myself to it. I saw it in the scriptures. So I went to Brother Fox's church in San Bernardino, California, and said to Leonard Fox, on a Wednesday night, went up to the altar. He had finished preaching. said, Leonard, I'm going to join your church. I was a Jesus freak with long hair. And he says, well, great. Kind of looked at me. I'm sure he was thinking, I got my hands full now. And he did. Because to mentor me would be difficult. It would be difficult. Turn to your neighbor and say, and you're difficult too. We all have a little difficult, in, but it was the local church. The local church that taught me to love and forgive and how to serve and how to be a, a normal community person and how to hold a job down and how to take care of other people. I taught the fourth grade class, the fifth grade class, the sixth grade class, the seventh grade class, the junior high, the high school. I did it all. I wasn't called to teach those in that sense, but they said, will you teach? I said, sure thing. And God was making a person. My local church commitment was a defining moment. The day I decided, I said, you know what? I'm going to quit all this funny business. I'm going to put my roots down. Six of my friends that were doing the same thing I was doing kept doing what they were doing, and they went into spiritual oblivion, never to be heard of again. Exactly where I was headed. But because I put my roots down, God guarded the tree. And God kept the fruits and God made the man. You need people to help prune your life. You need people to help raise you up. The fifth thing that I learned, defining moment, is trusting God by giving the first fruits of my income. Huge defining moment for me. I now had a job. I worked for a place called the Blue Chip Company. Blue Chip Stamps, where people would come in and, and bring their blue chip book probably way before your time, and then you could buy product and all that. Well, I was a warehouseman for the blue chip store. Then I went on to work for like a Toys R Us. I was a warehouseman for like a Toys R Us. Then I went on to work at the Shell gas station, and then I got a job loading turkeys into a truck. That is a job from hell. I had turkeys poop all over my head. I did work. I was a carpet cleaner. I was a drywall sheet rocker. I did a little bit of framing. I did all kinds of stuff, trying to work myself through college. But I remember the first check I got when they convinced me what to do with my money was a check for $125. And I had been taught about giving. But I needed more than 125 to live. $12.50. It's the hugest check I ever wrote. $12.50. It put me in debt because now I couldn't pay all my bills. But I had heard that you got to do it first. So at the first thing I did, I got my check, and the first check I wrote was $12.50, and then I took the rest of the money, and I started paying my bills, and I believed I had a defining moment about giving, that changed the way I saw money, God, job, provision, miracle. It changed the rest of my life. Number six was stretching my faith to give generous 
above my tithe. I had never done that before. I could hardly bring myself to tithe. It was a lot of money, $12.50. Then later on, you know, I got raises, and so it was like $140. And then, you know, it was $14 and $16. And then I got a different job, and I started making some really big money, $300 a week. And so that was $30. And so I learned no matter what the amount is, you do it first, never last. So I got into a habit. When we got married, we had the jar. I had Sharon, and the money was set aside. We never, ever had to discuss. Well, we, I'm sure Jesus would understand. He wants us to be people of integrity. we got to pay our bills. So I think we just, we never did that. Not once. Not once. It was first. Then it came time to give offerings. Offering. First one I did when I was single was a missions offering. And I could not, I could not gather my emotions and my mind to know what to give. How do you get a number? And I would talk to people. How do you know what to give when it's not a tenth? I mean, what do you do? And then they would tell me what they did. And I, I mean, what do you mean the Holy Spirit speaks to you? How does he speak to you? Does a number come to you? Do, you? do you thumb through the Bible? Do you write down seven numbers and then put your hand on it? What do you do? How do you, how do you come up with a number? I mean, I'm ignorant. I don't know how to do this. I mean, should I give all my whole check and, and then believe? Or should I get half? And You know, I'm trying to come to grips with this thing called generosity. Above the tithe. Now, let me go to a definition of faith harvest. And I want to deal with one word in this definition. Before we start the faith harvest month, I want to put my hands on something with you this morning. And I want you to, to buy into it. Here's my definition of faith harvest. Faith harvest is an offering that our church gave last year a million dollars above tithes, above missions, and there's faith harvest, which is an offering. A tithe is fixed, an offering is unlimited. And so a faith harvest offering is given a special offering. You're going to be presented, like our church was last year, with the opportunity. You'll have the opportunity. You don't have to feel you should do it. If you don't want to do it this year, you don't have to. I understand that. And we totally just kind of move in faith with the whole congregation. And whatever happens, happens. And we believe God for great things. And I meet with the elders. And I talk with the different business people. And I talk with my prayer people and say, what should we believe for? It's a total invisible kind of a faith target. There's no way to know how you set a target, what to believe by faith. But we do that. And so we set the target again for this year. And by faith, we move. And so faith harvest giving is a special offering. How do you do that? that is over and above my tithe. It's unlimited because it's an offering. It should be generous because that's the heart Jesus smiles on. And it should be faith-filled. It has everything to do with this word faith. And it should be filled with that joy and that virtue of believing God for and doing what you have a promise to stand on to do, faith. But let me deal with another word before you get to faith harvest above your tithe. Let me deal with the word tithe, but I don't want to use the word tithe. I want to use a word picture that you will totally understand. And it's biblical. It's all over the Bible. But I want you to see it, and then I want you to have a defining moment. I think if you hear what I'm going to say today, you will have a defining moment, no matter where you are with the tithe. Some people are very inconsistent with tithing. Some people don't even do it at all. They just tip whatever's in their pocket, whatever's left in their bank account. 
Some people don't even care about that. They'll, they'll give to a camp scholarship or a mission, but they will never give uh, consistently out of their income because it could be $50 a month or it could be $500 a month. And it's, it's beyond your comprehension. How in the world could I ever give if I make $3,000 a month, $300 a month to the church? Are you kidding me? There's no way I can make the transition from where I'm at to giving $300, same way I felt about where I was to give $12.50. It's the same thing. Whether it's $12.50, I, I can't afford that, or it's $300, I can't afford that. Why should you do it at all? Why should you do it? Does God need your money? Is God broke? Is God some kind of a person that just wants to drain you? Well, you know that not true. It doesn't even sound right. Well, is the church just not going to function if it doesn't get my money? Well, obviously the church is functioning. If you're not giving, look around. We're doing fine without it. So it's not that we're going to go broke or the church is going to go weird because we don't have your money. I don't think what I'm going to say has anything to do with what the church will get out of it. I think what I'm going to say has a lot to do with how it affects your life. Not our life. Because Jesus takes care of the church. And things are fine. We, I am not preaching this because we have some kind of a budget crisis. There is no budget crisis. Or the, I'm after some. I'm not after really anything. I'm preaching this out of principle and truth for a defining moment in your life. I want you to write this word down. First fruits. First fruits. And I want you to see it in the Bible. First fruits is an Old Testament term. Hello. A New Testament term also. And first fruit, because all of us are not on the same level with the Bible and understanding everything, is an Old Testament phrase to do with Israel with the three feasts that they had. Their Passover feast, their feast of ingathering, first fruits, unleavened bread, and then their feast of Pentecost and Day of Atonement down here, the seventh. And so they had first month, third month, seventh month. They had three feasts every year, and their whole nation had a rhythm around these three things. Of course, Christ has become our Passover. And Christ has become the unleavened bread. And of course, Christ has become the chief of first fruits. And of course, Christ is the end gathering. And so we know from the New Testament there's a fulfillment here, but there's a principle that God gave these people. First fruits. Let me explain it to you. Listen carefully. Historically, Leviticus 23 and verse 10, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, now remember this, there was no harvest this side of Jordan, the wilderness side. They never had seed, they never had crops, they never had harvest, they never had work. But when they crossed over Jordan and went into the land, they had seed to sow, they had crops, they had harvesting, and they had feasts. And so the feast was then restored to them, and they began to function after they got into the land because they were going to be crops. Now, when they came to this thing called first fruits, Leviticus 23, verse 10, it says, when you come into the land, that's when you cross over, go through Jordan, into the Canaan land, which I give you, and reap its harvest, reap its harvest. Then you shall bring a sheaf, a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest. Now, this would be kind of what it would look like. Would be this right here. It was probably a little bigger than this, 
but it was just simply a bundle of the wheat or the grain offering that was bound together from the crop that they were going to harvest. But I want you to see what God said to them about this thing called first fruits, sheave. It's also called wave offering. And why is it called that in the Bible? When Israel entered Canaan and began planting their own crop, during the feast of first fruits, that's what it's called, each family would harvest the first growth that would appear ripe in their field. They would offer it to the Lord. This offering was representative of the crops that were remaining in the field that had not yet been reaped. The farmer who would offer the sheave of first fruits was hoping that in the coming harvest year, that he would harvest the entire acre, 10 acres, 100 acres, whatever it was, and that they would be blessed and protected by God. And so the sheaf of first fruits was a partnership with Jehovah to say, Lord, I'm giving you the field. I'm going to take the sheaf of first fruits and I'm going to offer it to you as being symbolic that I'm offering you the whole field. And Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest and everything that I will reap in this coming year, everything in this coming season, I want you to put your hand upon it. I want you to protect it. I want you to favor it. I want you to keep the insects and the diseases and the mildew and the pestilence and the famine and all the other inhabitants that will try to come and wreck my field. I want to give you the field by making covenant with you that this first fruits is actually the whole field coming into your hand. Hello, when you tithe, when you do first fruits, Exodus 23, 16, the first fruits of your labor, that the Lord comes in and he works with you with the first fruits as he's working with the whole field. Now, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. When you bring your first fruits, this is what Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says because it uses the First fruits language. Honor. Honor the Lord. Well, when you honor the Lord, you honor his name, his character, his power, his sovereignty. You honor everything about him. And to honor him, you bring him the first part of this harvest by saying, Lord, I honor you and I believe that you are the God of promise and you are the God of protection and you are the God that will take the favor that you have put upon this and keep it. And Lord, you are my partner. You're my partner for everything that has not yet been reaped. All the raises that could come in or the income investments or, or the consistency of the job or whatever it might be. Lord, you're going to protect what is out there for me. I don't even know what will come against me this year. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. That's a relevant phrase, whatever you have. And with the first, the first, the first, and the best, the best, the best, the first, and the best. Of all your income, how about this? Your barns will be full. Your vats will overflow. When you're practicing first fruits and you understand that God is actually working for what is yet to come in, not what is already in your pocket, what is yet to come in. God says, I will make sure your barns will be full. How's your barns? How empty are they? How's your vats? How much overflow do you have? How much overflow margin? How much 
Do you stress over finance? Now, I'm going to say this to you because I'm your pastor, and I believe in you, and I believe in the Word, and I believe what I'm saying to you works. I've lived it. Other people live it, and it's Bible. I believe God wants to bless your life, and blessing your life means finances are involved with that. Some people are scared to death of the word prosperity and the prosperity gospel, and people talk about it. But you know what? It's better than the poverty gospel, and it's better than having a, a, a weird thing about your finance and your resource. What I'm saying is God wants to bless you, spirit, soul, and body. God wants to favor you, spirit, soul, and body. God is concerned about your job. He's concerned about your career. He's concerned about your grades in college. He's concerned about what you're going to do with your money. He wants you to be blessed and to be able to bless other people because if you're blessed, you can be a blesser and you can bless generations to come, by the way, and you can leave a legacy. You can send and do things other people can't do because God has put into your hands his blessing. Can I hear an amen? I believe God wants to bless you. I don't believe your barns should be empty. I don't believe your vat should never overflow. I don't believe you should stress over finance all the time. I don't believe you should always have lack, 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 lack. And you can't even live with the idea anything can be overflowing. I want you to break out of that today because we're going to bring our first fruits. We're going to lay our field before the Lord. And we're going to say, God, it all belongs to you. And I want a defining moment. I want a spirit of faith to come upon my first fruits. And I want to break the spirit of poverty and the stress and the enemy that has come against me and I'm going to break through this thing and see the blessing of the Lord come upon my finance in the mighty name of Jesus. It can happen. It happened to us. My barns are fine. I have enough for us and other people. Our vats overflow. I have enough for us and more than enough. I'm not a wealthy man, but I use everything. We use everything we can to bless other people. I'm not looking around worrying if we can pay the bills. Well, I haven't done that since I was 20 years old. I'm not thinking about what's going to happen next, and I hope that the car doesn't get a flat, and I hope nothing happens with the motor, and I hope this job doesn't, I think people are going to get fired. And when you are living in partnership with God, God can make your car go on empty oil, empty gas, and bald tires if he wants to bless your car. He can help you get through. I'm not saying it's wise if you should trade it car in or get new tires or whatever. I'm just saying that sometimes when you're going through stuff, you can. God says, I'll take care of the old car. People say, how do you drive that car? There's no rubber on the wheel. Don't need it. <laughs> well, the motor sounds like it's knocking. It's okay. It knocks me all the way to work. <laughs> well, you know, it just seems, doesn't matter. Come on, it says in the Bible that the shoes grew on their feet and manna came in every morning and the cloud came every night and God provided for them when no one else could provide for them. Even their clothes didn't wear out. Hello? God has ways of blessing. And when you're in partnership with God, it's fun. Okay, first fruits. Honor the Lord. Overflow. Everything you own. Here's five things I want you to pray with me today about first fruits. They're very simple. Write them down in your Bible. Write them down in your hand. Write them down somewhere. But get a hold of this. Number one, first fruits giving is setting aside, setting aside first and best. Nehemiah 10, 35, when we made ordinances to bring, to bring, to bring, to bring the first fruits. Someone has to bring it. 
the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all the trees. Numbers 18, verse 12, and we brought the best of the oil, and we brought the best of the new wine, and we brought the best of the first fruits, and whatever came ripe, we brought it before the Lord. This is Numbers 18, 12, and 13. And they brought it to the Lord, every one. Wow. Setting aside means I give God my best. Genesis 4, Abel gave best, Cain gave leftovers, and Cain was cursed. He couldn't figure it out, but Abel gave the firstborn of the flock. Abel gave the cornerstone of all of his wealth. Abel gave something that was very substantial. It was a great offering. God says, I'll honor that. Yours, a little bit of fruit in a cup. No, that would be replaced every single day. Abel, he's trusted me for the furtherance of his own herd. No, I will take Abel because it's a blood sacrifice offering. It's something, and it's the best of the flock. He didn't bring me a broken down, you know, lamb that kind of, you know, was ready to give up the ghost. Abel says, here he is. Here's my lamb. And the lamb goes, Abel says, I'm sorry, Lord, but that's a sacrifice. I mean, I almost got him here alive. You got you to honor that. I almost got him here. It wasn't a lame duck lamb. It wasn't some dying. It was the best. It was the one everyone looked at and said, wow. Boy, that's going to be a great beginning of another herd right there. That one, oh, whoa, that's a good-looking lamb. Yeah, it's going to be given to the Lord. Well, you know, why don't you do the other one over there, the speckled one that has a crooked nose and the back leg is... The Lord won't mind. The Lord understands. I mean, the Lord doesn't eat meat. <laughs> principle. The principle of a person who honors God with the best, God honors them with his best. If you want to honor God with your leftovers, then God says, I might honor you with my leftovers. And leftovers don't get you very far unless you're eating your Italian grandmother's pizza or lasagna. And then the leftovers taste good. Other than that, leftovers don't work. Not in the kingdom of God. Culture of leftovers, we want to get rid of that. Mediocrity. Colossians 3.22 says, and don't just do the minimum. Okay. Give him my first and my best. Proverbs 11.24 says, there is one, there is one. There is a kind of person, Proverbs 11.24, who scatters. And boy, they increase. Unbelievable. Ever know anybody like that? And you look at them and say, why do you increase so much? If you got to know them, you know why. And there is one, Proverbs eleven twenty four, 24, who withholds more than he should. And it says it leads to poverty. Lack. A withholder. Even though you think that you need the $12.50 to pay your bills, you're withholding what will, will not help you anyway. It's not going to get you any further. Even if it's a $300 or a $500, you're withholding the piece of the field. You take this back and say, I'm not going to give that. And God said, then I don't really have partnership on the whole field then because you're not even honoring me with a piece of the field. I'm not involved with the field. Do you understand that? I know, but I can protect my own field. You know what? I can do better with 100% than you can do with my 90. So I'm not going to mess with it. So you never know what God can do with your field because you won't even give up the few sheaves. Number two. First fruits given is acknowledging that all good things come from God and that everything belongs to God. Yes, I understand that or do I? 
my breath, my job, my business, it all comes from God to begin with. Leviticus 27.30 says, and all the tithe belongs to the Lord. Of course, it's already His. I'm giving it back, but it's already His. Everything above earth, below earth. 1 Chronicles 29.11, O Lord, you're the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth. It's yours, it's yours, it's yours. It's yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted and head over all. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. What are you afraid of? It all belongs to me. Fred Smith said, God entrusts us with money as a test. For like a toy to the child, it is training for handling things of more value. The Bible said, do not make an elder a person who mishandles money. If a leader, a deacon or an elder, or a spiritual person cannot handle money, it's your first insight they can't handle life. Because if they don't value what the money represents and they value the principle of the integrity of what to do with their money, they'll do the same thing with people. They'll do the same thing with family. They'll do the same thing with decision making. Why? Because they don't have a right value system. Their integrity is a, is a kind of a convenience integrity. I'll get first fruits when it's convenient for me. And so I'll make good decisions by wisdom and counsel when it's convenient for me. And I will love and forgive people when I kind of want to. I don't think I have to. And so that person can't be trusted because their value system is off. Your money is a reflection of your treasure. It's a reflection of your value system. It's a reflection of your faith. It's a reflection of how you do life. What you do with that treasure. What you do with mammon. What you do with resource. What you do with that stuff. Material stuff. Possession stuff. It's a reflection of what you value. First fruits. Number three. It's giving first in time. Pledge of hope. For the greatest harvest that is yet to be reaped. I'm giving for what is yet to come in. Not out of what I already have. Okay, I have $150 to give 15. It's not that. I'm giving for the other 15, 30, 50, 100 that has not yet come to me. I'm praying over that to be protected. And every time I tithe, I'm building fences around the field. I'm doing something with the hand of favor. I'm doing something to acknowledge that the sheave of first fruits means there's a whole harvest yet to come in. I acknowledge that every time I do first fruits. First fruits is that first gathered fruit of our to be harvest, to be harvest. What is your to be harvest? First of any endeavors of my business, my investments, my profits. Number four, first fruits giving is a special way to express trust. I think it's all about this, people. And God's protective and provisional power. It's all about Proverbs 3, 5. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure everything out on your own. Trust means, God, you said, and I believe. That's it. You're a trustworthy Lord. You're a trustworthy master. You don't lie. Do you think God lies to you about all the scriptures to do with first fruits or giving or other principles of prosperity or the blessing or the favor or, or the Malachi 3, 8 through 10 or the 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9 or uh, Romans 12 and, and we start going through. Do you think God, the Bible just says those things uh, knowing you'll never believe them? No, God is not a liar. 
And the Bible is not a liar. The Bible works. That's why you gave your life to him in salvation and you believe in water baptism and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you walk by the scriptures, which means you must believe the promises of God. That God says, if you sow your seed, I'll water your seed and there will come forth a crop and you will be able to harvest that. God says, if you will let me, I'll protect your field and I'll bring things into you that you could not even wildly imagine what I can do with your life. Have you ever taken the test to heart where the Bible says, prove me, go ahead, test me. See what I'll do, test me. It's the only time in all of the Bible, uno, once, that God says, prove it, test me, go ahead. Put me to the test. See what I will do. I want you to put God to the test. Number five, first, first fruits giving begins with the first part called, here's the word, first fruits and the word tithe. Second Chronicles 31.5. As soon as the commandment was circulated, Second Chronicles 31.15, but I'm reading verse 5, the whole section you could read. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance first fruits. Grain, wine, oil, honey, produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. Wow. Malachi 3, 8 and 10. Will a man rob God? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. You have robbed me. Rhetorical response. But how? But you say, in what way? How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Tithes, first fruits, offerings unlimited. You're cursed with the curse. I don't like that. I don't like that scripture. But it is something to deal with. If you have robbed me, even this whole nation, now I want you to bring all the tithes in the storehouse that there may be food in my house and prove me, test me now in this very thing, and says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven. Wow. What does that mean? And pour for you a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive. First fruits, when we take it to ourselves, do we rob God? So God says, oh boy, I've been robbed. I can't spend very much money this month because I've had so many people rob me. You're not robbing God of the actual coins and dollars and the bank account. You're robbing God from the very thing he does best. You rob him from the opportunity to bless you. You rob him as a child to a father who says, I, I so want to help you. I so want to bless you. I so want to get involved with your endeavors. I so want to teach you what it means to have me as your partner. And you rob me of that. Every single time you rob me of that. You keep me out by the things you do with your resource. You keep me out. I want you to bring me in. I want you to prove me with this because I can help you. I am your God. I can do this. So God says, please, will you believe that I can open the windows of heaven? First fruits giving. We're wrapping it up now. Here's my last slide. A defining moment happens when? This is what I would like you to think would happen to you right now. It happens when you decide to give the first fruits. At the defining moment that lives with you the rest of your life. 
as you decide to give the first fruits of your income and all that God gives you, not just your income. If you sell a house, you buy it for 50, you sell it for 100, you have 50,000 profit, you give it off the 50,000, not the 100,000. If you have investments, you give off the margin, the profit, understand that. If you own a business and it costs you 100,000 to run the business a year and you make 20,000, you don't tithe on 120,000, you tithe on the 20,000 you made on the business. And then you can also uh, invest in the kingdom of God to say, I want to see that increase. There's a way to actually seed for your increase. And part of that is faith harvest, and that's what we teach. And it works. It works as people do that. I'm talking about you believing that your first fruits is sacred, special, blessed. And I would like to see your whole field instant. Can I hear an amen? I would like to see your future brought into a sovereign hand of God. I would like to see you captured by the favor of the Lord. Prove me, says the Lord. I, 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 wanna, I want my field to be represented in my, my first, my first fruits.